My Govan, and welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel and the Tolkien Geek. And for those of you wondering where I've been, because you missed my post on YouTube a while back, I've just had some stuff that came up that really took away my bandwidth, and I had to focus on some other stuff. And this is not a full-fledged return to the channel, unfortunately. This is kind of a one-off because, well, I, I finally got a chance to play the Battle of Five Armies with my son, and so I have thoughts on that game that I want to get recorded before I lose, you know, my memory of what, you know, what the game is like. But it's going to be a while before I can get back to regular weekly uploads, so I do plan to do that at some point, so for those of you who are missing the channel, I'm sorry about that. I am planning to make a full comeback at some point. I'm just not sure when that's going to be. It's just been really difficult to find time. In fact, trying to get this video done is going to be kind of a rush, so it's not going to be up to my normal game review standard. But that said, let's get started with this and review the Battle of Five Armies. Now, the interesting thing about this game is it is made by the exact same people who made the War of the Ring game, which I have reviewed in the past, and I'll link to that in the description. And that's really important because there are a ton of similarities between the two games, and yet they feel radically different because there are also a lot of significant differences between the two games. I'm going to try to avoid making this just a, a direct comparison video because that's not really fair to this game, but I am going to have to bring up at some point, you know, the kinds of similarities and differences that I'm talking about because anybody who's played the one will recognize a lot of the stuff from the other, and it's useful to think about the two in conjunction to some extent. Uh, and in my final thoughts on the game, I'm going to also mention uh, another person from another channel who has mentioned something that I am going to talk about because it really tells you about the difference in the kind of person who's going to want one game over the other. That being said, this game is all about the Battle of Five Armies. There is nothing else from The Hobbit in this game. It starts with everybody in, you know, the valley around the Lonely Mountain and in the Lonely Mountain. And the goal of the game depends, of course, on which side you have. If you're on the good guy's side, your goal is to either kill Bolg, who comes into the game at, you know, an undefined point, but the the player playing the bad guys can bring Bolg into the game, and if Bolg is killed, the good guys win. Also, if the good guys manage to stay alive and keep the bad guys from taking a certain number of victory points until the fate track, which is a track on the board, reaches 15, I think it is, then the good guys will automatically win once that fate track reaches its end. And I'll get to the fate track a little more later because it has a lot of important stuff. The bad guys on the flip side want to win by either taking 10 points, 10 victory points, which is accomplished by basically taking settlements and fortifications and holding them until the end of a turn. So if they manage to take 10 points worth of places and hold them until the end of the, the current round, they win. Or if they take 10 points and capture the front gate, they just win instantly. They don't have to make it to the end of the round. The front gate, of course, being the front gate of the Lonely Mountain itself. So they've basically taken the most fortified spot and the spot that is the most you know important story-wise in the whole thing. So the reason all of this is important is ultimately because this is a tactical battle game. Unlike, say, the War of the Ring, which is... It is kind of a war game, but it's also a lot more than that. This is all about battles, and that comes through really strongly in the mechanics. So, the I should probably kind of frame the way the turn works and then explain the mechanics of how it works. That's probably the best way to do this. It's This game I found to be a little bit more difficult to understand in some ways than The War of the Ring, because it doesn't spell everything out in the same kind of ways and because of some of the the ways that you have to do things is not always in the rule book sometimes you have to reference the actual game stuff itself so the beginning of your turn is basically you draw from an event deck and from a story deck both players will be drawing 
from the same event deck, and they each have their own separate story deck. So you'll be drawing two cards at the start of every turn, one from a shared deck and one from a deck that is unique to you. You'll also be getting your dice ready based on how many characters you have in play. The good guys will have either five or six. The bad guys will have either six or seven. And the conditions for whether you have you know, a lesser or higher number depends on what you have going in the game. The bad guys have to have two settlements in the same region uh, in the map to get their seventh. The good guys have to have either Thorin or Bayorn in play to have their sixth. So you get your dice ready, and then the next stage is the good guys have to activate generals. And what this is, there's several characters in the game that will act as not just characters, but as generals. So you've got Gandalf, who's a general. You've got Thranduil, the king of the elves. You've got Dayan, the king of the dwarves. And, well, not all the dwarves yet, but, of course, the dwarves of the Iron Mountains. And you've got Bard, who is the leader of the Lake Men. All of these characters, and later some other ones that will come into play, such as the king, the Lord of the Eagles... They all act as generals, and they have special abilities that apply when you activate them. So if you activate a general, you will be able to use their special ability in the turn at some point. Now, the different abilities at the start mostly relate to placing recruitment tokens in settlements. So, for example, Thranduil, Dan, Ironfoot, and Bard all have a general ability that lets you place a recruitment token or two, I think, in various places on the board, which is what allows you to recruit more units into the game. And this is really important, of course, because if you don't recruit more units, you're going to flag out really fast while the bad guys just keep piling in and eventually take over the map. So you kind of need to do that. The downside of that, and you can only activate up to three, I should mention. The downside of activating more and more generals is the more you activate, the more chances that the bad guy has later in the next stage, which is drawing from the fate pool. There are a bunch of fate tiles that you draw, which have numbers and sometimes a symbol. And the higher the number, the more the fate track moves up. And the bad guy doesn't want the fate track to move up. So for every general beyond the first that the good guys activate, the bad guy gets to say, well, I don't like that one. I'm going to redraw. So if the good guy activates two generals, then if the bad player picks his, you know, first tile and it's a three and he really doesn't want a three, he can say, I'm going to set that aside and draw another one. Aha, it's a one. I don't move as far. Or if he activates three generals, then the bad guy can do this twice and, you know, try to get as low a number as possible. And the fate track matters not just because of the automatic win for the good guys, but also the characters who don't start in play mostly come into play based on how far the fate track has moved along. So Bilbo comes in at a certain stage, the Lord of Eagles comes in at a certain stage, Bayorn comes in at a certain stage, Thorin comes in at a certain stage. You have to be along the fate track a certain way before you can bring those characters in. And those characters make a huge difference. Thorin is an extremely powerful character. He greatly strengthens any dwarf army he's with. Bayorn is just a one-man army to himself. I mean, like, the way that these characters work is just incredible. So, Gandalf and Thranduil are a little bit unique in terms of, you know, them as characters because they also have long-range attacking capabilities. If you activate Gandalf, he has two abilities you can use as a general. One is to launch an attack at a distance and they have a marker they have a little cardboard thing that shows you what his range is and this applies to Thranduil as well and basically you roll a certain number of dice and you get a certain number of hits based on what you roll his second ability is basically concentration and you put a concentration token on him and it means he gets to roll more dice and get lower dice results to get hits so it improves his odds of doing damage the next round Thranduil is similar Because in addition to doing a number of, you know, putting recruitment tokens out, he can also just use either elven archers or lake men, who are also all bowmen 
for some reason they don't have any actual normal infantry. <laughs> uh, he can use any of them within the uh, within a certain area to attack at a distance. They have to be on hills and they have to be you know within a certain region, but they can attack an orc army from a distance and not be counterattacked. So that's another special ability. And the other ones that come into play later, Bilbo's not a general. So not every character is a general. That doesn't work. But some of them are. So, you know, the Lord of Eagles is a general. So, at any rate, that's the next stage. And then, of course, you draw your fate tile. You determine how far you move along the fate track. And some of those fate tiles will also have an additional symbol that says you have to draw a card from the fate deck. There's a lot of decks in this game. The deck will usually have something that will apply to a character that will come into play later. So, for example, it might say, you know, put some eagles into the Eyrie. That's where they start out. And the more eagles you have in the Eyrie, the better the Lord of Eagles is whenever he comes out because the Lord of Eagles' ability lets him send the eagles out onto the map to do various things. So there's that going on. There's also things that will make Thorin or Bayorn better, you know, whenever they finally come out. So these are the kinds of things that the Fate deck does. It just improves the abilities of things that will happen later on, or it'll, you know, the the bad guy doesn't want to be drawing cards from the Fate deck, but it's better to draw cards from the Fate deck and move only one space up it than move three spaces up it and possibly lose the game really fast. So those are the first few stages of the game, and it's really simple. The next one is kind of the main... Well, I'm sorry, there's one more stage, and that is the bad guy has to determine his own leadership. Oh, and that's another thing I forgot, by the way. When you activate your generals as the hero player, every general you activate lets you put a leadership token out onto a army that you have somewhere on the board, and that just gives leadership to that army, one point of leadership. Bad guys do kind of the same thing. When they start... They're, this part of the round, they figure out the number of dice they're going to be using, and then they take a number of great bats and a number of leadership tokens that combined equal to that number of dice and place them on the board how they want. The great bats are kind of like the eagles in the sense that both of them get placed out not in specific areas, but in broader regions that they call territories, and they affect the whole region or territory, uh, I should be careful here, because the game refers to the specific small areas as regions, and the larger areas as territories, I think. I might be getting that wrong, because I keep getting confused about it. Uh, but at any rate, I'm going to try to refer to territory as the broad region, and then the regions as the more specific regions. So, bats and great eagles affect whole territories, and they do different things. I'm not going to get into the weeds on that. You can find the instructions online if you really want to learn about all this. Uh, but they have effects that can impact battles in those areas, or they can have other effects on things going on too. So they place a number of great bats and leadership tokens. You can pick more great bats and less leadership, or more leadership and less, you know, fewer bats. It doesn't matter, but the leadership tokens do the exact same thing. They just count as one point of leadership for the army that you put them on. Now, you get to the main part of the game, which is you roll your dice, and then you use those dice to take your actions for the rest of the game turn. So, when you roll your dice, you've got six-sided dice for each side that are a little bit unique. They're very similar, but kind of different. If you've played War of the Ring, you're going to instantly recognize these, because it's the same exact dice that is in the main game of the War of the Ring. You've got various results on it. You've got a sword icon, which is a character action. You've got a helmet or crown, which is a muster action. You've got a flag, which is your army action. You've got a palantir symbol, which is event. And then you've got, um, what's the, oh, the lidless eye is unique to the bad guys. And that's unlike in the War of the Ring, where that had to do with actually searching for Frodo, here it has to do with goblins, because in this game there are wargs, there's great orcs, there's orcs, and there's goblins. And there's all these different stuff, and I'll get to that in a minute, because the types of units matter in this game. But the main thing here is the goblins are coming over the tops of the mountain passes, whereas everybody else is piling in through, you know, just the open area. 
So you don't really start with a whole lot of goblins, and you have to build up a certain number of goblins before they can make it over the pass, but then they're kind of coming in from behind the good guys, and it makes it really tough once you get them all built up. So that just works with them. The good guys have a unique Will of the West symbol, which is basically a wild card. It lets you use any other die result for you know whatever action you want to take that round. So you roll your dice, both sides, and then you take turns taking action. The free people's player gets to go first, and any player can pass as long as he doesn't have as many or more dice left in his pool as the other players. So the good guys, because they're pretty much always going to be a dice behind, they're going to be able to pass one time and then not pass again, probably. Unless at some point they end up with six and the bad guys only have six, at which point neither player can ever really pass. Uh, but it gives the free people's player a chance to kind of wait and see what the bad guy is going to do and, you know, just plan accordingly. But anyway, these different dice results let you do different things. And as you could guess, especially if you've played the War of the Ring, the muster action has to do with bringing new troops in. But it also has to do with trying to remove damage from armies that have been in combat. And this is called rallying. And I'll kind of cover that a little bit more when I talk about damage to armies and the combat type stuff. Army actions has to do with moving armies, using them to attack. Obvious stuff like that, right? Um, the... Character action has to do with moving your characters around, and also it has to do with moving armies that have leaders in them, and that can be characters who have leadership, or it can be armies just with leadership tokens. The event action has to do with either drawing more event and story cards or playing those cards. The event cards have both a you know a playable effect and a combat effect, so it has two sections. The story cards are just played with event actions. That's it. Also, I should mention that the event and uh, the event and story cards also have symbols on them that will match either muster actions or character actions or army actions, and you can use those die results to play the cards as well if you don't have any event actions. It gives you just kind of more opportunities to play cards if you don't roll event action results. So, but the event action is really, that's what it's for, is for drawing and playing cards. And those, of course, have a lot of different effects. Now, you don't need an event action result to play an event card as a combat card in a combat situation. So, you know, you don't have to worry about that. But that's basically what you do. You spend your time each turn, you, you know, use one of your dice to do a specific action, and then the next player does the same thing, and you keep going back and forth with the option to pass occasionally until both sides run out of dice, and then you take all the leadership tokens back off, you take all the great bats back off, and then you reset everything and start the round over. So you keep doing this until the victory, you know, condition is achieved for one or more players. Now that sounds really simple, but it gets a lot more complicated when you get to combat because combat is the most complicated part of this game. And I left out a certain type of card earlier. I talked about various kinds of decks. There's another kind of, it's not exactly a deck because you don't treat it like a deck, but there is another type of card in this game and they're called maneuver cards. And this comes into play when you're doing combat. And the way combat works is when you attack another army, you have to set aside any of your story cards, you keep your event cards, and then you draw maneuver cards based on the kinds of units you have available in your army. And or, if there's, let's say, great bats in your area and you're the bad guy player, you also take a card called Vampire-like that is a uh, maneuver card that you can only use if there's a great bat in the territory that the battle is happening in. The other interesting thing about combat that matters is the terrain. Each area in the map has a specific terrain type. There's hills, mountains, cities, plains, marshes. All of these have different, not exactly individual effects on the battle, but different units have different preferences for which kind of terrain they want to be in. Lake men are good in cities. Dwarves are good in hills and mountains. I, it, well... There's dwarf regulars and there's dwarf veterans, and they're both kind of different. 
but that the point being each different unit type has a an advantage in a specific type of terrain and when you attack you have to look at each different army figure out and the you have to determine this based on the area being attacked. The region uh, being attacked is where the actual combat is taking place. So you look at that region and you say, okay, this region has this terrain type. You look at both armies and determine, okay, which one has more units in it that have that terrain type as a preferred type. Whoever has the most units gets a, to draw an extra event card because they have terrain superiority. And that will give you another option in your combat hand. But if there's a tie, nobody gets to draw any cards. So there's that. And sometimes there will be a tie. Great Orcs are really kind of hard to draw into the game. But Great Orcs are good at literally any terrain type. And so you put them in a group and you might end up with a situation where you always have superiority or at least never are inferior. So there's all these different things, and the way the combat then works is once you discard your story cards, and you keep your event cards, and you draw your maneuver cards, this gives you your options for the combat. And for each round of the combat, you're going to play one of these cards. The event cards will usually have just a simple kind of, you know, effect, like, you know, you have the ability to, you know, maybe your dice count as one extra point. Normally you have to get a five or a six to get a hit against the opponent. There are exceptions to that if you're attacking, say, up a hill, because there, there are slopes in the game, or if you're crossing a river when you're attacking, then you have to get sixes on your first round. If you're attacking a fortification, you have to get sixes and do damage to the fortification itself until you break those fortifications, and then it reverts back to five to five or six. But cards might reduce or increase the number you have to get on your die, although it can never increase it beyond six or reduce it below one. Uh, you might have some where it's like, well, for any leaders you have, you can, you know, do something like, you know, whatever. I mean, it just, different effects are different. The way the maneuver cards work, though, is a little bit different because they are specific to the units you have in your army. So let's say your army has three elf spearmen and two elf archers. You will have the elf spearmen and the elf archer card in your hand because you have both. And if you choose one of them, it will apply only based on the number that you have in your army. It doesn't apply to the whole force, just to the units that it specifically applies to. And the way it would work is, the the let's take the Elf Spearman, because I can remember that one off the top of my head. The Elf Spearman has this ability that says, whenever you use it, you can cancel a, an, a, one damage from the opposing player if you, you know, succeed in doing it. So you play that maneuver card, and the way that would work is you would replace the combat dice is, it's five white dice, but there's also five black dice. What you would do is replace three of those white dice with three black dice, because you got three elf spearmen in your army, and if any of those black dice representing your elf spearmen get a hit, and that depends on what the number has to be, then the effect of the maneuver card takes place. Unlike an event card, which always applies, the maneuver card is dependent on whether you get a hit with the black dice representing those units in your army. And this is this creates a lot of tactical opportunities, but it also creates a lot of decision-making issues because you, when you're recruiting units in, you don't get to choose exactly what you do. Remember how I mentioned earlier you get recruitment tokens and put them down. Well, the recruitment tokens stay face down until you actually muster and turn them over, and then you randomly find out, oh, I got a dwarf regular here, or I got a lake man here, or I got an elf archer there. You know, I mean, you don't know what they are until you turn them over. So you can't control what units come into play where, and so your armies are going to be kind of random mixes of different kinds of units. And so your tactical options are going to be somewhat limited until you start kind of separating and recombining your armies. 
Because if you've only got one elf spearman in in an army and you want to use his ability, the odds of you getting a five or six with just that one black die is fairly minimal. You might do it, and if you've got nothing better, you know you might want to use it anyway. Uh, but that's you know you're just kind of limited. So those are kind of your options for combat, and that's the way it works. Now, in addition to all of that, you're also going to, everybody's going to have what's called a regroup card. And the regroup card is what's going to let you recover the rest of your combat cards, your maneuver cards. Once you use an event card, it's gone forever. But if you play just a maneuver card, it just goes off to the side until you play your regroup card and get everything back. The regroup card will also allow you to retreat without going into a route. And routing has various effects that I'm not going to get into in detail here. When damage is done in a combat situation, and this is another major difference between this game and the War of the Ring, the damage is done by putting markers in the army. So there's these little triangular tokens that you put in the army. Each damage roughly counts basically as half a unit. And the way this works is you can let that damage build up and up and up over time until you have more damage tokens than units in the army. And you can never have more five, more than five army units in an army at a time, with some exceptions for certain bad guy mustering points. But we don't really care about those for the most part because those are never going to be in a combat situation. So let's say you have five units in an army. Once you hit six or more damage in that army, you have to do what is called taking casualties. And at that point, you have to remove one army unit and at the same time remove two damage tokens. And you keep doing this until you get to the point where you have as many or fewer damage tokens as you have units in the army. So, unlike in the War of the Ring, where when you take damage, you just automatically take units out of the army, here, you don't do that automatically. You only do that once the damage reaches a certain point. And this allows you to kind of finagle a little bit with how quickly you triage people out of your army. And this is important because, as I mentioned earlier... The muster action will also allow you to rally your armies. So if that army has a lot of damage in it, you can use the muster action to rally, and then you roll dice, and the results will let you maybe take some of the damage off of that army. So you can actually have your armies get you know, away from a combat situation and try to recover themselves and heal up and go back into battle again, but it also wastes your mustering on that as opposed to bringing in fresh troops. So there's all these tactical considerations going on. Now there's a ton of other stuff going on in this game. Like I said, there's attacking up slopes, there's attacking across rivers, there's attacking fortifications, there's you know what the eagles do, what the great bats do, there's just all this stuff going on. And I don't want to explain too much of that in excruciating detail because that's really more than is necessary for a game review. So I'm just going to stop my kind of in-depth explanation here because that's kind of plenty to get a feel for how this works. So here's a few things that I want to mention in terms of comparing this game with the War of the Ring, right? Because I think for those of you who have played War of the Ring, a comparison like this is going to be really helpful. Or if you've played the Battle of Five Armies and haven't played the War of the Ring, you know, if you've played one or the other, but not both, kind of having some idea of how they are similar and different is, is going to be useful in determining do you want to get the other one that you don't already have or haven't played. So the Battle of Five Armies is very much a tactical battle game. The War of the Ring is not. There is obviously a war component to the War of the Ring. It's called the War of the Ring, after all. But a huge chunk of that game is about moving the Fellowship and keeping them hidden and trying to avoid being corrupted. And here, the the main similarity is that the Fellowship in the War of the Ring, their corruption is noted on a corruption track, much like the Fate track is used in the Battle of Five Armies. And the similarity there is, if you ever reach the end of that track, one side automatically wins. It's just 
in the War of the Ring, it's the other way around. The bad guy automatically wins if Frodo reaches max corruption, whereas the good guys automatically win if fate reaches its maximum point. It's like Providence steps in and does it. Just ends the thing. And I like that about the Battle of Five Armies, that they kind of switched it that way, because The Hobbit very much is a story about how Providence keeps stepping in to save Bilbo and his dwarf companions from problems. (laughs) So it actually makes sense in a lot of ways that the fate track benefits the, the good player as opposed to the bad player in this scenario. And in that way, I really like the fact that it, you know, it's, it's kind of trying to keep to the same ideas that the war of the ring has of using the story elements to build the mechanics. It, It really works in that way. The major difference is Unlike in the War of the Ring, where you've got all these cards that you're playing and you're trying to make all this progress, it feels like you're playing out the story of the whole Lord of the Rings saga, other than, you know, like before Rivendell. You start at Rivendell in the War of the Ring. In the Battle of Five Armies, most of that story stuff is gone. The story being told is just the story of the battle itself. And it's not as much of a story. It just isn't. And in, you know, in concrete terms, if you look at the the Battle of Five Armies in The Hobbit, Bilbo is unconscious for most of it. (laughs) I mean, we don't really get a detailed account of it, and most of what we do learn about it is after the fact, when he's told stuff, you know, after he wakes up. And so the, the story cards and the event cards, they don't do as much in terms of conveying the story aspect because we're not talking about the whole Hobbit here. We're only talking about this one little part of it, which is a major event, of course, in Middle-earth history, but in terms of the scope of the Hobbit as a story, it's very short. Um, So there's, you know, it's a very big difference in terms of how the games feel, even though the mechanics are very similar. Now, that's another Speaking of mechanics, the mechanics are very similar, of course, obviously, because, like I said earlier, if you've played one of these games, you know what the dice are for the other. The dice are exactly the same. The only real difference is the way that the lidless eye works in the the Battle of Five Armies is radically different because it's not about finding the Fellowship. It's about bringing goblins over the mountain pass. Now... In the minutiae, it's very different because the army actions, character actions, the way these are used are very different because they are very much more combat-focused. So, for example, the mustering, being able to you know rally armies, the army actions and the character actions will let you move and attack, not just move or attack. You know, There's a lot of different stuff going on where the specifics of what these dice results do are somewhat different in the two different games. But overall, it's still basically the same stuff. You have your army actions, which do things with your armies. You have your muster actions, which is mainly used for bringing in troops, so on and so forth. A lot of similarities. But the, like I said, the big difference is kind of the scope. And you can see that in the way that everything is done. And one of the ways in which that plays out, of course, is the maneuvering cards. And if you're into tactical decision-making in a battle or war game that is definitely going to put you in in the camp of the Battle of Five Armies because it is much more tactical, much less about a huge, broad sweep of things than the War of the Ring is. And this is where I mentioned earlier I was going to mention somebody else from another channel. Sam Healy from the Dice Tower. He's no longer a regular contributor there, but he used to be. Um, He said in, I don't remember what video it was, I think it was a video that they were talking about games that replaced other games for them. But he said the Battle of Five Armies completely replaced the War of the Ring for him. And I can understand why. Because Sam Healy really does love his war games. He likes Warhammer 40k. I mean, he likes a lot of that kind of stuff. And so I don't blame him for that. Like, if that's the kind of stuff you like doing in a game, mechanically the Battle of Five Armies is vastly superior for that sort of play. It's clearly the better war game, straight up. The War of the Ring is a huge mishmash of hidden movement, pushing your luck, you know, war game, it, it just tons of stuff all put together in one package. And it seems like it shouldn't work, but it does. 
the Battle of Five Armies doesn't work anything like that because it's very much focused and controlled and on point in terms of everything is about that battle situation. The fact that Gandalf and Thranduil can, you know, attack long range makes total sense. Like, you couldn't do that in the War of the Ring because the map is so much more zoomed out. You can't shoot from Minas Tirith and hit, you know, the far end of the Pelennor Fields or, you know, Osgiliath. You can't do that. So it wouldn't make sense to have that kind of ability, but in here it does because you're talking about a much smaller area where you've got hills and mountains that you can shoot into a valley from. Okay, that makes sense. The battle aspect of this is that that's half the game. Like, the funny thing is, when my son and I were playing this game, it was moving really quickly at first until we started getting into the actual combats. Once you get into the combats, because you have to discard your your story cards for the time being, take in your maneuver cards, figure out which one you want to play, and then you start rolling dice against each other. It takes a lot more time to do combat in this game than it would in the War of the Ring, and that's where this game really shines. And the maneuver cards, that's what really makes it interesting. The fact that you can say, well, I've got four elf spearmen, I can play that and probably prevent some of the damage you're about to do to me. Or, you know, I have this, you know, in my army, and it's going to allow me to do that to you, more than likely, depending on how many I have. That's really cool, the fact that you can do that. Or you can choose, well, I don't want to take a risk on the fact that, you know, I've only got one or two of these guys in this army. I'm just going to use an event card that I know is going to give me some kind of result. So there's all these different things that let you make really tactical decisions, and it's just absolutely fascinating. So that element of the game is what really sets this apart from the War of the Ring. Now, another major difference that I will say is that because you're sharing an event deck with the other player, it's it's kind of strange because like all of the event cards are very, you know, amb- not ambiguous, that's the wrong word, but kind of non-specific because they have to be. I can't have an event card that says if you're, you know, Throndewil gets to do this because the event that event card might be drawn by the bad player. That's why you have separate story decks. In the War of the Ring, you had two decks per player. You had a character deck, and then you had like a army muster deck. And you draw one from each at the beginning of each turn. And each one of them would have very specific stuff to your side. Here, you're both drawing from an event deck, which has more generic type language. And so the effects of that that you can use with the event half of the card are not very story-oriented. They're very just, this kind of thing happens. It's like, well, that could fit into any story. There's no immediate connection to good guys or bad guys, because there can't be. Your story cards do have more connection, but this goes back to what I said earlier about there not being that much story about the Battle of Five Armies. Yes, there's story cards, but they don't do a lot of storytelling in the same way that, say, the decks did in The War of the Ring. One of my favorite examples in the War of the Ring was uh, there's three cards in the good guy player's deck that apply to, you know, basically let you use Fangorn Forest against Isengard if you have Gandalf or a Hobbit in whatever region, I forget, it's either Fangorn or Isengard itself. And it lets you just roll dice against any army in Isengard and just tear them up. And if you have all three in your hand, it'll actually let you play them consecutively with just one event action. So it lets you tell the story of the Lord of the Rings through these cards. The Battle of Five Armies doesn't do that as much because, like I said, most of the story of the Five Army battle is not really told in much detail. So... Like, there's things that happen, like Thorin coming in, and the Great Eagles coming in, and Bayorn coming in, and those are mostly controlled by the Fate Track, not story cards. So, you have a lot less control over how things happen as both good and bad players. And that takes away a lot of what I liked about the War of the Ring, which was... It's Lord of the Rings in a box. I get to relive that story, albeit told a little bit differently because it's never the same. 
Whereas here, I don't feel like I'm living a story out. With the Battle of Five Armies, I feel like I'm playing a war game which just happens to be the Battle of Five Armies. It's like there's not as much of the story element going into it. And so this is where I disagree with Sam Healy. If I was going to say one game replaced the other, obviously the Battle of Five Armies came out after the War of the Ring. But setting that aside, I would say I would much rather play the War of the Ring than the Battle of Five Armies. The Battle of Five Armies is a great game, don't get me wrong. But what I like about the War of the Ring is the fact that it t- you live out that story. Whereas here, you're not really living out a story. You're just having a battle. It's a great battle system. The mechanics are marvelous. The, the whole system is great. It's, you know, for that kind of game, it is well made. It is, you know, just awesome. So, I'm not knocking the game in any sense. I'm just saying these are the kinds of... These are the two kinds of players that are, are going to encounter these games. You're going to have the Sam Healy's of the world who are going to be like, I just want the nitty-gritty, the really you know, strategic and tactical decision-making and the ability to do different things with my units and all this other stuff. And then there's people like me who are going to look at it as, I want the experience of the thing that I read so many times and just want to live it out in a board game. I don't feel like I'm doing that with the Battle of Five Armies. And again, not knocking the game. The game is great. It's a really cool game. And the fact that it's got so many different tactical nuances is just... It it takes some getting used to because there's... In some ways, even though it's a smaller scope, because there's so many different kinds of decisions you have to make, it's a lot steeper of a learning curve, I think. Now, I say that having only played this once and having played War of the Rings several times... But the War of the Rings is, it's, you know, you're really, the the strategic decisions, at least for the hero player, are kind of limited. You get character actions, you probably are using that to move the Fellowship along so that you can get to Mount Doom. That's, that's your goal. Whereas in here, the kinds of decisions you make don't really relate to that. Like, the, the die results can all be used for kind of the same stuff. Your character actions are mainly used to have your characters move or to use your leadership to move armies. And your characters really only move in order to be with armies. You can do that in War of the Rings, in the War of the Ring, but that's not the primary use that the character action has for the good guys. The primary use is getting Frodo to Mount Doom because... If you're going to win as the good guys, that's probably how. And so your strategic options, not necessarily your tactical options, but your strategic options are kind of made for you in a sense. Whereas in here, it feels like you have relatively little control in terms of the broad scheme of things, but you have a lot of control over the very narrow scope. And again, this actually does fit with the theming of the game because Providence in carrying out the you know the the overall s- scheme of how the battle of the five armies plays out it makes sense that providence decides a lot of that for you but the actual tactical decisions you are the one that's making those whereas in the war of the ring i mean you can't you know put providence as much in the driver's seat with that because of the nature of the way that story plays out and how you have to mechanically build it up into a game there's just very different considerations in terms of how you have to build that in. Both of them make sense. So I will say that in terms of building a game based on you know building the mechanics up from the storytelling elements, both of them do a great job. I think that the Battle of Five Armies is just a little more limited in the sense that because there is less story being told, you have less to rely on in the story. The main thing that this really comes from is the idea of, you know, when these different characters enter the battle and how they affect it. And that's mostly decided by the fate track. Whereas in The War of the Ring, the mechanics are... The way that the mechanics play out is way more broadly applicable to the story because there's... You know, there's cards that come directly from story events. There's, 
the way that corruption works. There's the way that the fellowship is trying to move in a hidden way. There's having to bring all these different free peoples into the war with, you know, by politicking them into a state of being at war with Sauron, all this different stuff. The Hobbit just doesn't have as much to draw on because it's taking, you know, you know, most of the Hobbit and shrinking it down to here's the Battle of Five Armies. We're just going to focus on that. Again, not knocking it. I'm just saying this is the kind of thing that makes a player like me favor one over the other. So that's kind of my overall thoughts in a way I've kind of given away at this point. My overall thoughts is it's a great game mechanically but it's not going to replace for me the War of the Ring. If I have a choice between which one I'm going to play, I'm going to choose the War of the Ring eight to nine times out of ten, probably. Uh, but in some ways, I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to say this. There's a sense in which you could almost play the five armies with somebody else who's not a huge Lord of the Rings fan or Hobbit fan easier I say that, but I'm not 100% sure that's true because mechanically speaking, I think even the War of the Rings is simpler. <laughs> um, because there's just so much going on with the combat and the tactics in the Battle of Five Armies that eats up so much of the decision-making. And you have, not just in terms of the combats, but all the decisions that lead up to the combats. I need to move my armies around so I can get five elf guys together on a territory that has... I mean, a region that has their kind of, you know, terrain. And, you know, the idea of all these decisions that go up to leading up to the combat even. And that's why I say that the strategic and tactical thinking in this game goes deep. Deep. Really deep. Like, that's why I say the learning curve is kind of steep on this game. Because you have to make so many decisions from the back end leading up to what eventually happens. Like, you want to get armies up to a river so that when the bad guys try to cross in, they're going to have to cross a river against an army that has a terrain advantage so that you have a better chance of... And that's before you even get to the actual combat! <laughs> so, there's just a ton going on in this game, and it's a really fun game. And it's But you have to be thinking about all the long-term implications of the things that you do. And the way when my son and I played it, he's not really old enough to grasp all the tactical nuances. So, you know, he, he constantly made the decision to only activate one general at a time. And then he, he and I would frequently forget to have, have him actually use that general's ability. But, you know, even when he does, it's like if you're only doing one at a time, that doesn't allow you to do a whole lot. And if you don't muster in more armies, it gets really easy for the bad guys to just sweep in and... Because the bad guys start with more people and they can recruit more people. Lots more people. So, I mean, it's just... When you you have to really have that long-term thinking about how you're making your decisions. And be aware of so many things on the map. And so many things that can interplay with each other. It's it's really deep, really nuanced. There's a ton to it. It is kind of a steep learning curve, but if you're really into, you know, the Tolkien universe and you're into war games that are really, you know, detailed in terms of how the battles work out, you'll love this game. I mean, it's it's absolutely fantastic in that regard. What you're going to miss is if you're like me and you want the Hobbit in a box. It's not the Hobbit in a box. It's not even really... I wouldn't even call it the five Battle of Five Armies in a box. Because again, it doesn't ever feel to me like I'm telling the story of the Battle of Five Armies. I am so caught up in the details of how do I get my armies here? How do I get my armies in the right formation? How do I you know, tactically approach all this stuff? That I never feel like I'm immersed in the story in the same way that I am with the War of the Rings. Now, granted, a different person, and maybe this will change over time as I get more familiar and more comfortable with all the mechanics, but if, if you are more comfortable with that style of gameplay, you might feel the story come through more because your brain space is not being completely taken up with the tactical decisions. 
So, you know, don't take that as a, this game has no story to it. It does. I mean, the fake track and all that, it does play into the story of the Battle of Five Armies. It's just a very narrow, you know, part of the story compared to what the War of the Ring covers in the Lord of the Rings. So, those are kind of my thoughts. I mean, like, this game, in an objective sense, is every bit as good as the War of the Ring and arguably better. I mean, I'll give Sam Healy that. This game is probably, in a mechanical sense, the way that it's built, a better straight-up game than the War of the Ring, because the War of the Ring is a really complicated mishmash of a ton of different things. And so in that regard, it's really, really, really good. It's finely tuned, it's honed, it's like, it knows what it wants to do, and it laser focuses on it. It's really great in that sense. I just... What I love about Lord of the Rings is reading the story. And so what I want out of the game is the story. And the the War of the Ring gives me the story in a way that the Battle of Five Armies, it does to a degree but cannot do as much of. So if I'm going to pick one of the two, I'm going to pick War of the Ring. But I'll play either of these games given the, the time and the willingness of somebody else to, you know, learn it and play it with me. So... That's my take on the Battle of Five Armies. Like I said, there are a ton of additional rules and nuances that I didn't go into because there's a bunch of stuff in this game. But it's an excellent war game. If you have a person that just likes war games but doesn't necessarily care about Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, definitely go with the Battle of Five Armies. And if you have somebody who's into any kind of war games and really loves The Hobbit, it's still going to be a great game. So... I would highly recommend it. Now, I don't know how easy it is to find. I got this a year and a half ago, and it was for Christmas, and I know it had to have been expensive because it was already expensive before that. I don't think they've reprinted it since, but maybe they have. It's probably not easy to come by, but you know, if you're willing to shell out the dough or if you know somebody with the game and you've been thinking about it, you know, take a chance on it if you're into this kind of game. This is... It's really top-notch game design. I've I've got to give it that, if nothing else. And it is fun. It really is fun to, you know, try to make all these decisions. It's just, you know, it can be overwhelming if you've never played either of these games before because it's both games have a lot of rules, ton of rules. Uh, but once you get into it, it it is fun. And you do, there is story in this. And Like I said, I'm not trying to deny that there's any story to it. But... Man, the the real fun in this is figuring out those armies, putting them together, putting them in the right spots, and using the right card at the right time. That's where this game shines. So I'll leave it there. Uh, I'm not reopening my Patreon or anything like that at this point because I still haven't gone back to full you know weekly uploads. So I'll just say, you know, please subscribe to the channel. I am coming back. You know, if you were wondering if you should subscribe or end your subscription. I am coming back, so keep your subscription or subscribe if you want to catch more of this stuff. Uh, you can catch me on my other platforms. It'll be in the description below. And until the next time, whenever that is, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye.